Howdy, Tonsillians. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. EscapingTheCave.com. Fuck Twitter. No Facebook page. I'm a freak. I'm also your friendly and cordial host, Todd. I've introduced myself today. Isn't that nice of me? It's Monday, March 2nd, 2020. I did not do a politics dump this weekend. I thought about it. I have it right there. I got a lot of stuff. It probably would have been two hours long. I uh, decided not to this week, though. Even though Pete Buttigieg dropped out of the race just a few hours back, I respect what that man did, by the way. I like Mayor Pete. And he was on the uh, debate stage, I think, last week, right? Tearing into Bernie Sanders saying, hey, if we elect, or nominate, I should say, if we nominate a radical to lead our party into the general election this fall, he's going to get beaten. Or he could get beaten by Donald Trump. A lot of people are saying the same damn thing, and they are right. Saw an article on Quillette. I don't do much Quillette anymore. Yeah, I told you all about the IDW late last year. I do it in little tiny chunks. Very small doses with the Quillette, but they put out an article, um, I don't know when it was, maybe last few days, that I saw that said pretty much the same damn thing. And they came out and laid it out. It's not so much Bernie, although it is Bernie and his socialism, his quote-unquote democratic socialism. It's the woke stuff. People are just sick and tired of all of this. You need to behave all morally proper like me. Fuck you. That's the generalized reaction. We saw it over in in the UK in this election last fall. The woke plague has spread across the Atlantic, and the Labor Party got throttled. I'm not going to go off on politics. Already gone too far. (laughs) But uh, Mayor Pete saw that, and he's like, you know what? I have to take some accountability, and I have to take some responsibility for what my presence in this primary process might end up doing, meaning giving Bernie Sanders the nomination and possibly giving Donald Trump the election. He knew when to get out. He was doing really well. He won Iowa. He did really well, I think, up in New England as well in, uh, what, New Hampshire? He did not do well in South Carolina. Black folks don't uh, connect with Mayor Pete. <laughs> Most people saw that coming. And uh, when that happened, over the weekend, he canceled a couple of appearances, uh, flew to South Bend, and announced that he was ending his campaign Sunday night. So, props to him for getting out. And now it's your turn, Amy Klobuchar. I like you, too. I would have voted for you, but you're not winning anything. The only role you have in this primary process is further fracturing or continuing to fracture the moderate vote. And the moderates, if you take all of these candidates together, the the moderates are gaining more votes than Bernie. Bernie and Lizzie. I mean, if you take all all things totaled, moderates are getting more votes. They They have got to stop fracturing themselves, splitting the vote up, and threatening to either nominate Bernie or send this to convention. Anyway, it's your turn, Amy. I don't think she's going to be in there very long. I don't think she's going to get out before Tuesday. I really wish she would. But I don't think she is. So anyway, no politics dump. Super Tuesday is coming up tomorrow, I think, right? It is this week. Yeah. Probably take a big, healthy politics dump this weekend, most likely um, on Sunday. Not going to do that. I am twisting the ship. I am steering the ship in another direction. I've been talking about independent thought, validation addiction, and all that stuff for the last couple of weeks. It's time to move on to something more, hmm, less abstract. It's going to be the media, but not quite Yet. I have something I'm going to use to set all this up. 
I've been talking about your undivided attention. That's another podcast. It's not usually uh, par for the course for a podcaster to promote another podcast when they don't have one of the podcasters on as a guest. These guys don't even know I exist, I'm sure. That's okay. If you're listening to my show, you should definitely be listening to theirs. Your Undivided Attention. Center for Humane Technology, I think, is the organization. It's a nonprofit. They don't have ads in their podcast. I don't think they're really monetizing this thing at all. If they are, I can't tell how. We are a rare breed. But uh, an episode they did maybe a month, six weeks ago, I didn't check the date on it, but it's called uh, Trust Falls. And it's a perfect gateway to this uh, latest examination, short examination, relatively speaking anyway, of uh, the media. And the episode I'm highlighting, they have a guest named Rachel Botsman. She is a trust fellow from Oxford University. She has a book out there called Who Can You Trust? I have not read it. I will. (laughs) Once I tear through the stack, I've got. She also has a podcast I have not listened to yet either. Probably should. Uh, It's called Trust Issues. She knows what she's talking about. And I was enthralled with this podcast because of its timeliness and how many directions and how many different places that it applies to the current state of affairs, not just in this country, but I think uh, worldwide. But I think you'll understand, and I think you'll see exactly where this is going once we get into it. So let's do that. The mechanisms of trust are breaking down. The next chapter of history, Rachel says, is frighteningly devoid of structure. It becomes harder and harder to know whom to trust. And when you don't know what or whom to trust, that creates a vacuum a vacuum for bad actors and misinformation and people that actually know how to manipulate that vacuum. And that's the polarization and sheer chaos that I think we're seeing all around the world today. Every day that passes is a day that we lose trust in some of these systems. We're losing trust in our leaders. We're losing trust in our discourse. We're losing trust in the democratic process. And the risk isn't just that we hurtle back into an era of local trust. It's worse. With the onslaught of new methods of deception and bots and deepfake technologies, we may give up altogether. We may beget trust apathy. So the question remains, how do you reboot trust from that state? This image of trust being in a state of decline and trust in a state of crisis isn't accurately describing that what actually is happening is we are giving our trust away too easily. Who do you trust? And I really was struck when I first heard this episode about how we're giving our trust away too easily. I'm not 100% sure that's what it is, and I think she sort of uh, goes off another path later on in the show because I think it ties in, (laughs) I know it ties in, to data overload and being bombarded with endless streams of disconnected data that is not pre-curated. It's only put forth into our feeds, into our eyes, into our ears, because it's something that the content producers understand will appeal to a certain segment a certain demographic, a certain ideological congregation within the public. It doesn't matter if it's true. The most important thing is getting those advertisements in front of eyeballs or eardrums, in podcasting's case, or in radio's case, talk radio. Talk radio is a perfect example, and this has been going on in talk radio for years. Rush Limbaugh. He's an excellent broadcast, fantastic broadcaster. I respect the hell out of him for what he does, just for his, his professional skill. But that entire show has been crafted 
Yes, as an ideological mouthpiece, but also because they understood a long time ago that there was an audience for that and they could sell advertising with it. He, he Do you realize how much money he makes a year? It's something like $80 million. $80 million? Does his contract or something? I'm not sure if that's a year or total. Whatever. This guy's incredibly high paid because he's worth it to the advertisers, because he puts forth a product that draws people in. You've got to understand this. You have got to drill this into your brain that the stuff you're seeing on social media and the electronic media, all media, if they're selling you something, they're giving, they're putting something in that trough to get the bovine to it to feed so they can put the advertisers in front of them. That's the problem, and we're going to get into this. We're going to get back into this. I went into a lot of this last year in the Media 101 podcast. This is going to be Media 201. We're going to get a little deeper into it now. We're going to launch with trust and why this is important. When the institutions fail, when you do not believe in the institutions, we're wide open to be manipulated by demagogues and propagandists. There has got to be trust in something. There's got to be something demonstrated that that is something out there that is trustworthy. So we know what to believe. So we know somebody's not just bullshitting us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In fact, she gets into it in this next clip. Let's do that. I won't do panels anymore on this topic because the moderator wants you to sit on a side. They want you to, right? They're like, pick a side. Are you for or against? I need to know. I need to wait my panel. And you're like, well, I can't answer that question. What's your diagnosis of why that that's true? I think it has a lot to do with identity. I think people want to know what side you're on, whatever the issue is. That's why um, I've become a lot more conscious in my work in any label that is a binary or a polarizing label like remain leave anti pro for and against right left i learned this the hard way because i made this series on anti-vaxxers and one of the things i wanted to be very careful of not doing was pitting the expert against the anti-vaxxer and what i realized from speaking with anti-vaxxers and really trying to understand where their views come from I realized that they care about the same thing that I do. They care about their children. And I know it sounds such an obvious point, but we lose sight of this. I think often in these conversations, we care about the same thing, but our views on how we get there are very different. And it's really, it's really hard to do. You know, like I'm very pro-vaccinations. I, you know, I had measles when I was a child and, and lost my eyesight for a while. It took every bone in my body to not get angry and defensive and even to sort of shut these people down and you know what was going on in my head was like just stupid right but they weren't stupid they were incredibly informed and at certain points in the conversation I was actually like oh my god maybe I, I have got it wrong because I didn't know that about the CDC and that relationship to that pharma company and so I think when we sort of open ourselves up to really trying to understand the belief system and what someone else cares about. It's not the solution, but it's it's a way to find more common ground. Well, and per the attention economy, it's never been easier to lose the context behind someone else's statements. Technology creates the ability to connect with someone across the world, but you don't know that person's world because you're just seeing 140 characters of text with them. And so it goes back to your point about if trust is our relationship with the unknown, and trust is scaled by technology, it's not doing a good job of pulling in the full contextual space that that other view might be living inside of. 
And then there's this co-evolutionary force of increasing polarization, increasing identity, which means that it's easier than ever to project the least charitable view of anything you see onto uh, a person in front of you. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about beliefs. This idea that you and I and others can't have any kind of shared sense of reality because we don't know what is true or false or what is fact or fiction. That the stage on from that, the term being used, which is brilliant, is this idea of reality apathy, that we reach a stage where we don't care, going from a world where we're both seeing the same things to not knowing whether what we're looking at is true or false, fake or real, to not really caring. Yeah, I mean, I think the issue of caring is is really important. I was just talking with someone on the phone last night who does work on elections around the world. I was talking with her about how at the end of the day, if you don't know what to trust, you just go back to trusting the people around you, right? Like, I mean, imagine yeah. a world where you don't know if anything you see on social media is true. Like, it could all just be false. So I, I don't know what to trust. I'm tired of it. I don't really have time. I've got to feed my kids. You know, what are we going to do? I'll just trust the people around me because that's just You a go lot back to local easier. trust. Right. You revert back. Your... Yeah. We contract when people stop trusting what they see and hear outwards. They contract and they look inwards. You know, we were talking about trust surveys, which I take with a pinch of salt because I think they miss how contextual and subjective trust is. But I, I found it really amazing that key theme that was emerging was that the most important trust relationship in people's lives is starting to become the employer and the employee. And I actually found that really frightening that people are starting to turn to the people that they're employed by for information on all these things that we used to get from a variety of sources. And I think that's that's exactly what you're talking about. That is disturbing. That is creepy. That the highest trust level we have is coming from the people who pay us. And there's so much in here, man. I, that was a four and a half minute clip. And I, I feel like I could probably talk 15 minutes on it. There's so much in there, starting with what side are you on? When she goes on a panel, she doesn't do panel shows anymore because the moderator wants to pitch you on one side and the other guy against you so they can sell the conflict. That is the television model. It's the crossfire model. You remember John Stewart, I don't know, 15 years ago? He uh, sat down with Tucker Carlson and just tore him an asshole. But it's gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. That's a classic clip. It went one of the first viral clips probably, right? <laughs> Maybe not, but... It seems that way. I mean, everybody remembers when he did that. Just said, you, you, you guys suck. It's terrible. Why are you doing this? But it's still the model now. Except what they've done is they've taken networks and they've pitted one against the other. They pitted themselves against these guys. Us against them. And that's all that matters. And then they craft the product around that. And give you what you want. Is there any reason she made a comment in there about a shared sense of reality and then falling into reality apathy? Is there any question why we do not have a common set of facts, even a slight idea, that there's an external objective truth out there that we all should be pursuing? This feels better. Giving us what we want, putting us at the center of the universe, putting our narrative, our pseudo-environment, our political congregation on the side of righteousness against the evil horde. I talked about that in the last episode. And this is the agitation propaganda model that I'm going to be talking a lot about. I've talked a ton about that already. It's coming back. 
I'm going to get a little further into it as well, because that is the agitation propaganda model. That is the unleashing of human hatreds. Alul talked about this. It was incredibly uncomfortable to read it. It was even more incredibly uncomfortable to put it in the podcast. But people need to hate something. It's a primal human thing. We have got to start understanding that. Introspection matters. Understanding and knowing ourselves matters. And if we're not willing to see that, if we're just willing to see the other guy is evil rather than looking at ourselves and understanding, you know what, I just want to fucking hate somebody. I just want to feel like I'm on the side of righteousness. Because it elevates me and my sense of identity. She talked about the identity in there as well. That's a huge part of it because they can craft that agitation propaganda to elevate you. While they're agitating you against the other guy, they elevate you and put on the armor of righteousness, as Lippmann called it. It takes on the weight of Holy Scripture. Then you descend into a mob with that moral certitude that I've talked so much about. And you got to keep in mind, the other guys are doing the same thing. They're just as certain you are just as evil as you think they are. That is the stuff that's being unleashed here. There's no two ways around that. There's no other way to spin this. All you have to do is look around. And eventually, you get to the point, like she said, you don't know what to believe. If you're a conscientious informational consumer, what do you believe? When everybody's a liar, nobody's telling you the truth. Then how do you trust that? How do you trust anything? How do you know what to trust? Would you know it if you saw it? It's incredibly dangerous. As we're about to find out, if we haven't figured it out already, we're going to find that out really soon. I think you know why. I'll be pivoting to that here in a couple of minutes. I also like the thing about buzzwords uh, that she mentioned in that clip as well. It's something, as I was listening to this, I realized that I have been doing this subconsciously for a really long time. There's just these words that pop out of people's mouths when I hear them. I'm like, oh, okay, she's trying to minister to me. She's trying to give me her testimony. And the discourse is full of that stuff. I like the fact that she talked about the anti-vaxxers. Now, this was put out before the coronavirus was a thing. you got to keep that in mind. She didn't. This wasn't put out like three days ago. I think it might have been the end of December or maybe the beginning of January. And the other thing, too, is the path to commonality that she mentioned. I mean, if, if you realize when you're talking to somebody with a different set of of preferred solutions and keeping in mind that you want the same thing, that you're concerned about the same thing most of the time. And it's something that she gets into in this episode. I don't think I included it in any of the clips, but the conversations and the discourse descend so quickly into personal attacks or just vitriol that it's so easy to forget that. And then all of a sudden you're just dealing with a, with a heretic and a blasphemer. Somebody who hates America or hates your version of America. Data overload, big deal. She didn't really mention that in this, but I think that's uh, a huge factor in all this. I may have mentioned that. Uh, and, and all this, I think, is, is sort of a descent into the conspiracy theory mindset where you're asking yourself, hey, you know, can I believe this? Is this something I can allow myself to believe rather than asking, uh, is this true? Is that a fact? Or is it just something I want to internalize, digest, and, and then regurgitate later on? 
And the shared sense of reality, man, that is huge. Reality apathy. Reality apathy and coronavirus. Put that in your craw. Let's continue on. I think the leaders of Facebook, the only thing that is going to work now is a very, very grand gesture around their intentions and motives to genuinely demonstrate that their intentions are in the best interests of users. And that has to lie around the business model. I think anything else, anything else, to be honest, just is a waste of time. It's not going to move people on. Well, you know how much I agree with you. That's why we came up with you know this sort of description that sometimes listening to tech leadership is like watching a, a hostage in a hostage video. Like the things that they're saying don't make any sense until you see the gunman holding a gun at their head from off stage, and the business model is that gun. And you're like, oh, that's why they're acting so crazy and saying all that gibberish. And I want to be clear that you know I've met many tech leaders, and I don't think they're bad people. I think they are. No. They are trapped. And I think the things they are told internally that make complete sense internally don't work externally. You know, I, I sat on a panel with Ruth Porat, who's CEO for, of Alphabet, uh, the holding company of, of Google. And I remember this moment where she said that there's no trust issues with Google. People perform trillions of searches on our platform every single day. And my mouth like nearly yeah. dropped. But then I realized like, Everything that's put in front of her, the way they measure trust is in the same way that they measure growth and profits and money. And so I think it's often the internal narrative doesn't help their decisions and how they really need to behave and the way the external world actually perceives what is going on. There are two main things that I want you to take away from this before I go off on a small little tangent here. I want you to remember the internal conversation. She just called it the internal narrative. And this obviously plays in. I could could make a a complete segment (laughs) on uh, Facebook and trust, but that's not what I'm talking about. I included this because what she's talking about definitely ties in to our media. Not just social media. I'm talking about the network news and where we get our current events information from. The internal narrative within these companies is based on profit. These companies are corporations. They are a for-profit business. Ed Murrow warned us all about this. What would happen? What could happen? What has happened once news and information became a commodity to be sold on a marketplace? The man was a profit. And the internal conversations that go on inside of these companies are about profits. They have got to turn a profit. they got to offer a return to the shareholders. And that means they have got to give you something that you are going to click on or watch. And they need to maximize that. And they have figured out that agitation, hatred, is the thing that sells. It's a primal instinct in us. You give us a threat. You give us something to fight against, something to go to war against. We will unite at least within our echo chambers, at least within our congregations. And they figured out how to monetize what is essentially, not even essentially, it literally is agitation propaganda directed at our own populace. It's pretty damn simple. And that is the profit motive. Now here's the here's the tangent. I'll try not to go on too long here because I really want to get back to this, and I need to pivot. Remember, profit motive. Something else in there though. No trust issues with Google. That cracked me up when I heard it. 
I mean, she explained it with the internal narrative. I understand all that. But what it reminded me of was Brian Stelter. You know who he is? He's on CNN. He's this guy that just has this, he has this on-screen persona. I am in a righteous battle for the noble profession of journalism. Ha, 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 ha. He has a show on every Sunday morning on CNN. It's called uh, Reliable Sources, where the show presumes to critique the media. A show on CNN trying to uh, pretend that they're, you know, really doing a deep dive into how the media is doing. And I, I tried to watch it. I was kind of excited when I first found out about it. And I tried to watch it, I think, for three weeks. And I couldn't stand it. There were a couple of segments in there that were pretty good, but it's all talking about Fox News most of the time. And when it's not talking about Fox News, when it's talking about the other organizations and their fuck-ups, it descended into something of an apologist show, trying to explain it away, unless it was Fox News. If you've detached your identity from the ideology, and you sit down and you watch that stupid network, It's laughable watching him defend that network and the rest of the corporate media, the rest of the boutique news media, the rest of the agitation media. It's laughable. And it would be laughable if he didn't have this this expression on his face. It's like he thinks he's Sir Lancelot. How can he watch his own network? How can he watch Brooke Baldwin, one of the Brooke girls, on in the daytime? editorialize constantly with her eyes or with her mouth and pretend that that is a journalism-based network. That is a boutique news network. They should change their name to BNN. It's ludicrous. Now, we were talking about the profit motive, right? And I'm sure if you've been paying attention to the news at all, you probably have heard the name Project Veritas. Anyway, they hoodwinked an ABC News reporter named uh, David Wright. And as they pointed out in their piece on their website, this guy graduated from Harvard. I mean, he's not a hack. He knows what he's doing. This isn't an office temp here. And they had a hidden camera, and they got him talking about the media, and they got him talking about ABC News and how they cover Donald Trump. With Trump, we're interested in three things. We're interested in the outrage of the day, the investigation, and kind of the palace intrigue of who's backstabbing who. Beyond that, we don't really cover the guy. Outrage of the day, the investigation, and the palace intrigue. I apologize for the audio. It's not my fault. They had a hidden camera in a crowded room. This may be a little rough to listen to. Go check out the uh, video online if you want to see it. Project Veritas has it up, and I'm sure there's other places. But that's it, isn't it? The outrage of the day. What did Trump do today that will piss the viewers off? Give them a sense of noble righteousness against this guy. Or the investigation, the impeachment investigation. How are we going to get him? Or the palace intrigue, the drama, the soap opera, the infotainment aspect of this news organization. They are not in the business of giving you news and current events information. They are in the business of entertaining you. The purpose of news is to draw you in and keep you there in front of the advertisers. I'm going to keep saying that. I'm going to drill that into your skull. If you have headphones on, (laughs) it's going to be like a needle by the time I'm done. But that is the point. Keeping you in front of the screen and you like to be angry like Ren from Ren and Stimpy. I like being angry. It sells. It's incredibly potent. And then it gets kind of silly here. 
Kind of silly. He goes on to talk about ABC's other motivation. We can't watch Good Morning America without there being a Disney princess or a Marvel Avenger appearing. It's it's all self-promotion. Right. And promotion of the company and also promotion of individuals within the company. Yeah. As opposed to dedication to the story and a commitment to telling stories that we need to tell but that are maybe hard to tell. What he's talking about there is uh, he says that you can't watch Good Morning America without seeing a Disney princess or a Marvel character, right? What he's talking about is corporate incest. Putting ABC's, the, the entire corporation, Disney, onto ABC News and selling their own product while pretending to give you news and current events. Now, he's talking about Good Morning America. That's more of an entertainment show, but they do sort of portray themselves as the morning news as well. I did a rant on Matt Lauer. Uh, about a year ago, when I was hitchhiking up in Vermont a couple of uh, years ago, I about got thrown out of a truck stop because I was yelling at the Today Show. But they do versions of the same thing. Product placement. Paid product placement. That's what the point is. Putting your eyeballs in front of something to sell. Now, David Wright, this guy, Mr. ABC guy, he was suspended for this. He, didn't, he, he wasn't suspended because he lied. He was suspended because he got hoodwinked and sort of gave you a peek at uh, Oz behind the curtain. Not a big fan of Project Veritas. I don't like how they sort of set people up like this. But in this case, in this particular case, because it's so damn important, I have absolutely no problem with this. No moral qualms with it at all. They did us a favor here. Back to the commercial imperative. You ready? Commercial imperative is incompatible with news. I can't afford child care. Or I need medical care for whatever. So those things aren't TV friendly. What he's talking about there is issues that actually matter to people. Issues that, quote unquote, should probably be covered on the news. You can't sell them. They don't draw enough eyeballs. It's reality TV. Infotainment. And he came right out and said it. And that, in the end, was why he got suspended. Now, the profit motive. And I saw something this weekend that was hilarious. It's on one of my friend's Facebook feeds. Posted something about the stock market. And how he was, he's a conservative guy, and he posted something down the line of, I don't care about the the stock market, I'm going to buy stocks low. And then when the stock market rebounds, well, I'm going to sell high. It's good for me. It's good to get into the stock market when it's low. As he's talking about the worst stock market crash since the uh, Great Recession of 2008. <laughs> and one of his friends, one of his Facebook friends came in, and she was all like, oh my God, well, that stock won't mean anything if the world ends. He might, well, I really, all that stock won't be able to buy anything and the world will basically be destroyed. And he comes back and basically says that it's bird flu, that nothing's going to happen. And I'm not really picking on either one of these guys. What struck me was the divergent perceptions of reality. For this woman, this liberal woman, it was Arma freaking Geddon. The world was going to end and all that money in the stock market wouldn't mean anything because the world would be destroyed. Whereas he wanted to compare it to bird flu or swine flu or MERS or SARS or something like that. And it was no big deal, nothing to worry about. It was obvious that their perceptions of reality perceptions of reality 
were obviously determined by the media they were consuming. Who's right? That's like the Andromeda and the Milky Way galaxy in one little thread. So what I did was I took a little screenshot of those two comments and I, I filed it away on my computer so I can look at it later on when we actually understand what's going on because none of us really know anything. The CDC and the professionals really don't know what the hell's going on yet. They don't know how quickly this is going to spread. They don't know how the carnage is going to be. They have no idea. And this comes back to the trust issue. We don't know how to take what the media has given us. Who do you trust? Who do you trust specifically? And would you even listen to the other guy? Would you even listen to anything the other guy had to say? Any consideration that they would put forth about this coronavirus thing? Or are they all full of shit and are all your guys hitting that nail on the head? And when you don't know, as uh, Rachel Botsman said earlier, you withdraw. You withdraw into what you want to believe. You withdraw into the echo chamber with the flock, and you believe whatever the flock believes. You believe whatever the flock's media tells you. That's a problem. And God help us if the dire predictions are true. John Oliver did a pretty good piece on this on uh, last week tonight on Sunday. And this is what we're looking at. The fact is, a 2% mortality rate, if true, would be about 20 times higher than the seasonal flu. And while the good news is around 80% of those who get this virus have mild symptoms, the bad news is that means they are more likely to spread it without even realizing. That is one of the things that makes this so dangerous. And why, even though its mortality rate is much lower than that of SARS or MERS, this virus has already killed three times as many people. In fact, one expert has predicted that 40 to 70% of the world's population will be infected within the next year, which is incredibly upsetting. So I'm going to focus on that last number. Okay, He says one expert, he didn't say who, he didn't say where it was from, just called him an expert, said that 40 to 70% of the world population could be infected with coronavirus within the next year. Could be. 40 to 70%. Now, that's a wide swing. So I did the math on this, and I couldn't even do it on my calculator. So I decided to do it just for the U.S. We have 327 million people in this country right now. Let's use the low estimate, 40%. Okay, if 40% of the U.S. population is hit with coronavirus in the next year, that is 130.8 million people. Now, the figure they're throwing out there is that it has a 2% mortality rate with people with uh, you know, underlying conditions, high-risk people bearing the brunt of that. But 2% of 130.8 million people, 2% of that 40% infected would be 2,616,000 people dead in this country alone. Now, if they're right, <laughs> this isn't bird flu. Not by a damn sight. But nobody knows. Nobody knows anything. So who do you listen to? Who do you trust? What do you base your terror level on? Or where are you going to go to get good information? In Iran, a government spokesperson attempted to reassure people that the virus was under control, while the deputy health minister standing next to him started mopping away fever sweat like an Alabama preacher. That, that guy was later confirmed to have the coronavirus, although not before going on TV again to explain away his symptoms while coughing all over the fucking studio. <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, which it is, it turns out the Iranian people now trust their government so little they think he was staging the whole thing. 
They say they're, they're lying that they have corona. They, they want to... This is a propaganda. Well, they think he's not got it. No, no, no. They say that he's lying. And in three days, he's going to come out to say that, oh, you see, I'm recovered. It's not serious. Don't worry. The level of mistrust towards the Iranian politicians is so deep that they, they, they wouldn't believe anything that comes out of their mouth. Right. Iranians won't believe anything that comes out of their politicians' mouths, even if that thing is the actual coronavirus. <laughs> and that, that is a huge problem, because it is going to be hard for any government to give effective advice if people don't believe in them. You know, trust in institutions is critical when trying to contain a possible pandemic. I think he understated things there. It's not huge, it's catastrophic. The lack of trust in government institutions in a moment like this is catastrophic. It's deadly. If you cannot trust the information coming from your government, <laughs> good luck containing this. And the Iranians, again, a lack of trust in government to such a degree that they think the guy was pretending to have it so he could go back on TV and say, hey, I'm all better, see, it's no big deal. That's the conspiracy theory mind that I was just talking about. That's where people go when they don't trust their officials and their leadership to be tethered to external truth, and when they've just given up. They'll believe anything. He talked in another segment on the show last night about how some people think this is a biological weapon from China. <sighs> and to transition to the main topic today, no, this isn't it. To transition to that, guess what? Some people are even clearly trying to profit off the present panic, like televangelist Jim Baker, who has a cure that he'd love to sell you. Would you recommend, as a doctor, people to have silver in their house for, for a pandemic? Be, you never want to be without silver. You're saying that silver solution would be effective. Well, let's say it hasn't been tested on this strain of the coronavirus, but it's been <laughs> tested on other strains yeah. of the coronavirus and has been uh, able to eliminate it within 12 hours. Yeah. Totally yeah. eliminate it, kills it, and deactivates it. <laughs> okay. That is ridiculous. Silver does not kill coronavirus. Silver kills werewolves, which means first, you need to get your coronavirus bitten by a microscopic werewolf. And where am I going to find one of those in this economy? Well, that's right, from our online store. For just $49.99, we will send you John Oliver's premium werewolf solution. It contains millions of microscopic werewolves ready to spread their bestial curse to your coronavirus, and then you can use the silver solution, which is based on the exact same amount of science. The truth is... The truth is... While, clin while clinical trials are underway, there is no treatment for the coronavirus at the moment, and a vaccine could take between a year and 18 months to develop. And at this point, you may be wondering, how scared should you be? And the answer is probably a bit. A bit. Look, I don't want to be alarmist here, but I also don't want to minimise what we could be facing. It's really about trying to strike a sensible balance. Basically, if you're drinking bleach to protect yourself right now, <laughs> you should probably calm the fuck down. <laughs> if you are, say, licking subway poles because you're certain nothing can hurt you, maybe don't do that. You want to stay somewhere between those extremes. Don't be complacent. And don't be a fucking idiot. Don't be complacent and don't be a fucking idiot. Well put. I really enjoyed the Jim Baker thing, though, because that is a perfect metaphor <laughs> for your media. Putting the outraged silver in a bottle and selling it to you one way or the other every single day. That's how we get these two competing informational universes colliding. 
on a Facebook thread. These two wildly divergent perceptions of reality. If it wasn't so terrifying, if the stakes weren't so high, it would be hilarious. But the stakes are pretty damn high. And again, I think this stems back to this reality apathy and this data overload. People not trusting the media, not trusting the government, not trusting the other side, the resistance to put forth any reliable information, to put forth any objective truth whatsoever. What we decide to believe, what this country decides to believe is completely and totally, almost completely and totally, dependent upon the political filter through which they see the world. And that's one thing when you're talking about, I don't know, a tax hike or some fantastical utopian vision for universal health care. That's one thing. When you're talking about a virus that some people think could hit 40 to 70 percent of the world population within a year and kill 2 percent of those, when you're talking about 2.6 million people possibly being dead in the next year, possibly, I'm not saying this is going to happen. I'm not, you know, nobody knows. That's the thing. The experts don't even know. We have no idea what's happening. And if we did, let's pretend somebody had a clear concept of what's going on. Would we even believe it if they told us? And even if we did have an idea of what we were dealing with, would half the country, half of the damn country, ignore it? Absolutely ignore it because uh, it came from the other political cult. And would they completely ignore it? Would they go out of their way to defy it, thereby spreading the virus even more? I dare say yes, I think they would. You know, the uncertainty of what we're dealing with is bad enough. What's worse is the uncertainty and the volatility that we're dealing with with general public who will not believe what's coming from the experts, what's coming from public officials. I haven't mentioned Trump in this scenario yet. His press conference last week didn't help. He's contradicting his own public health experts. We're saying, yes, there's going to definitely be more. We just don't know how much. Well, there could be 15, and then it'll drop down to two, and then that'll be good. What the fuck? What the entire fuck? I mean, look, I'm with you. I'm with you conservatives on a lot of things, but... But I got to tell you, if you're taking your hatred for Bernie Sanders and AOC and you're believing the bullshit coming out of his mouth as a result of that, at some point, if it's not with this virus, that kind of mentality, and I shouldn't really pick on you guys because if Trump, what if Trump's right? Would you believe Trump if he was right about this? That it's nothing. I mean, to say he comes out in six weeks and say we got it under control. This is an incredibly dangerous situation. And not just because of the virus, it's because of us. And it's because of this agitation, boutique news media, not believing in any sense of objective truth, not trusting each other to believe in any objective truth, and the tribalism. And also it's on us too, because we demand this boutique news stuff. We want it, we devour it, so they give it to us. This isn't all a media thing. This isn't all a Trump thing. This isn't all a liberal thing. We have just as much responsibility for this 
as they do, because this is what we want. We live in a capitalist society, whether you like it or not, whether you love it, whether you hate it, that's the society in which we live. We live in a society that has a for-profit media model, a corporate media model. It's a business. They can only give us what we will consume or else they go out of business. So if all we want is happy facts and information that backs up our worldview, our schema, our pseudo-environment, our scripture, that's what they're going to give us. And that means nothing can be trusted. That means you cannot trust the media to give you good information. You cannot trust the politicians to give you good factual information. And in a situation like this, it could become deadly. Again, the virus is bad enough. The cognitive virus makes it worse. So one commonality that John Oliver, your undivided attention, and the Project Veritas clip had in common was the profit motive and how that affects information and how that affects trust. And as I mentioned before, the most profitable informational commodity in this country is outrage, controversy, and primal hatred, agitation. So I'm going to start this little introduction into the next uh, phase of the podcast with a little review that I wrote, and it's incomplete. I have to say that uh, uh, right off the bat, I did not finish this book. <laughs> I will. Uh, I've got it sitting right here in front of me. I only got a little ways through it. Uh, honestly, what happened was that uh, I figured out that, yeah, the guy's pretty much saying what I've already said. Do I really need to finish this up right now? And I moved on to other things. I do need to finish this book up, and I will. But what I'm talking about here is Matt Taibbi's Hate Incorporated, Hate Inc. It's a book that came out late last year. I was slowly working my way through it as I flipped through uh, Lipman Bernays and a few other people. <laughs> and I got about 60 or 70 pages in. And by the time I set it down, it appeared that Taibbi had written something that read like an iconoclastic insider's indictment of his own industry. Right now, I have it opened up to the beginning of the 10 Rules of Hate chapter. And that's essentially an expose on how, uh, beginning with Crossfire in the 1980s, mentioned that earlier, and then Fox in the 90s and everyone else since, the for-profit media has unwittingly, unwittingly monetized agitation propaganda. Conflict. A Taibbi's snap conclusion at the end of the chapter pretty much mirrors my general ones. Winter is here. And if something doesn't change, it's going to turn violent at some point. It's almost like the laws of basic human physics, and to assume otherwise is being obtuse. He has a section in there talking about when discourse basically becomes Hitler versus Hitler. Like each side thinks the other is Hitler. Those are his words. And when that happens, there are no rules. I mean, what rules apply when you literally think you're fighting a quote-unquote evil enemy? A diabolical, satanic enemy, a Hitler. Are there rules when you're fighting Hitler? I don't think so. He also has details in this book about how the New York Times editor, I think her name was Spade, uh, was fired after presuming, presuming to publicly advocate for journalistic objectivity after the New York Times embraced their openly slanted, openly slanted, Rethinking objectivity, that's what they called it after Trump's election. Rethinking objectivity. They wanted to become political activists as a newspaper. And she was against that, against that rethinking objectivity slash false equivalency narrative. Of course, in favor of massive, massive Trump-induced profits. 
They have made a killing on subscriptions since they started covering Trump and the attached outrage. It's been a boon. Now, you can understand why they would do that. Newspapers have been uh, struggling for a really long time, and they got a cash cow. They figured out how they could finally make money in the digital age. And when you take that into account, when you take into account how profitable, how appealing, how addicting agitation propaganda is, the outrage industrial complex, how much people like being angry, it's creepy, but it also speaks to why we have the media we do. It also speaks directly to why Trump, when he screeches, fake news, fake news, why that resonates and why. To be perfectly frank, he's not 100% wrong about that. Who do you trust? (sighs) And again, why are they doing it? Revenues. They're up something like 36% since Trump announced in 2015. That is an insane number, 36%. Basically, they helped elect Trump in the first place with billions of dollars of what's amounted to free political advertising in the run-up to 2016. And while that was bad for us, these media outlets, some of which, like the print mediums, as I was just talking about, which were on life support, not too long ago, made truckloads of money in the process. It was bad for us, bad for the political discourse, bad for everything except them. 36% increases in revenues since Trump announced in 2015. Then what did they do after Trump actually won? Did they soul-search in the face of gargantuan new revenues? (laughs) Silly. Now, they simply switched the narrative to democracy dies in darkness. They tweaked but kept the theme. Democracy dies in darkness. To justify doubling down on their profitable wall-to-wall Trump vest, complete with universal pledge drives. Have you seen those? (laughs) We're going to need each other this year. Send us money. All over the place. Subscription panhandling, raising the national fever in the process. There are different versions of that going on everywhere. And I got to tell you, I got to admit this. Back in the late part of my resistance days in 2017, they almost got me. I considered giving. (laughs) I considered, quote, unquote, giving (laughs) to the Washington Post. But I didn't, thank God. And this doesn't even begin to factor in any sort of foreign social media manipulation. This is just what we've done to ourselves. One of the best lines so far in this book is his own quote from 2017. He used it in this book. He says, quote, The model going forward will likely involve Republican media covering Democratic corruption and Democratic media covering Republican corruption. Unquote. That was from 2017. This is precisely how these dueling Ukraine controversies and scandals were uh, last year and still are. Honestly, in most minds. This is how they're mutually exclusive. CNN was covering Trump's fuckery in the Ukraine while Fox News was covering the Bidens. (laughs) Again, that's how you get these separate parallel informational universes. It's how you get one group of people thinking that Trump's the evil villain while on the other side it's Joe Biden. Republican media covering Democratic corruption and Democratic media covering Republican corruption. And as he said, before those scandals ever broke last year, he said, quote, the average person will no longer even see, ever, derogatory reporting about his or her own quote-unquote side. 
Uh-huh. That's boutique news. Perfect. That's Media 101. It's going to be Media 201 as well. He concludes by pointing out that, uh, quote, being out of touch with what the other side is thinking is now no longer seen as a fault. It's a requirement. <laughs> being out of touch with what the other side is thinking is no longer seen as a fault. It's a requirement. Oof. I remember suggesting this last year. I tried it for a long time. I can't do it anymore. I had to stop. But uh, switching back and forth between CNN and Fox, to hell with MSNBC, at least in my opinion. Uh, getting the Biden coverage from Fox, getting the Trump coverage from CNN worked really well. It gives you, a, I don't want to use the word balanced, but it gives you at least insight into what the other side is thinking. Maybe what their concerns are if you can cut through the rhetoric. And that may be the best you can do if you're interested. Good luck. Hopefully you can handle that better than I could. I couldn't do it for very long. It's bad, you know. Yeah, but why? I just went on tour. She asked me why. I just went on tour. It is March 2nd, 2020. Super Tuesday is tomorrow. The election is in, what, eight months. And now we've got coronavirus on top of that. And I tell you, as I dig through this book and the other stuff, and I look around at the landscape, what's coming up after this election? Virus or no? Stock market crash or no? Terrifies me. I could be wrong about this. You know, there is a possibility that uh, the coronavirus and the stock market crash could all combine to sort of wake the, the population up. Maybe there will be a groundswell for a moderate Democrat. Somebody that's not going to encourage more of this equal and opposite bilateral radicalization. And maybe Trump will be defeated this fall. Maybe the coronavirus and the stock market crash, whatever else is going to happen over the summer, maybe that finally breaks the national fever. You know, I had a bit of a blind spot in my historical knowledge when it came to the 19-teens and the 1920s. And the stuff that I'm reading from Lippmann and Bernays and a few other people gives the impression that the divide if not as bad as it is now, was similar in the 1920s as it is now. A time of prosperity. All of a sudden, as 1930 rolled around, or the Great Depression, other things took precedent. People have talked about how we need some national or natural disaster to strike to, to sort of snap us out of this, to get us to see each other as, you know, countrymen, neighbors. And maybe this is it. I could be wrong, again, you know, I never took <laughs> I never took a stock market crash of this magnitude or a, a pandemic into my prediction considerations when I talked about the election this fall. But this could be the thing that wakes people up, gets them away from the radical socialists, moves them towards moderates who are willing to compromise and willing to work with each other, at least to confront a problem and maybe bring the country along 
reintroduce a spirit of compromise, cooperation, not seeing each other as Hitler, maybe. I will offer that that could happen. Hmm. Or, <laughs> or that kind of chaos could just push us right over the edge of the cliff. Not literally Tonstradamus, I just play one on a podcast. Either way, I think John Oliver nailed this. It's incredibly wise, I think, in my view, to keep an open mind about this and pay attention to the experts. Listen to what they're saying. As this thing spreads in Europe, they're probably going to be offering information as well. See if you can get it from them. If you don't trust any of the American media, pay attention to what they're saying over in Europe. I mean, this virus has only killed 3,000 people worldwide so far, and the vast majority of them are in China. It's not exactly widespread here in the United States yet, although it did hit Florida. Saw that before I started recording tonight. A couple of cases in Illinois. I think there's one in Massachusetts. New York City, I believe, has one now. Another person has died. That's two that I know of here in the U.S. So it's still the early stages of this, and yes, it could just not take off. It could turn into another SARS. I don't know. We have to keep an open mind that's tethered to reality and objective facts. Listen to the experts here. The elites. The people who know what they're talking about. Don't listen to Nancy Pelosi insulting Trump just because he's Trump trying to score political points. That is happening. (laughs) If you're listening to Trump, (laughs) really? I know you hate AOC, but come on. Is he the guy you really want to be taking advice from on this? Yes, I know he holds the title of president. He was just hosting The Apprentice a few years ago. Is this where populism takes us? Is this where electing a guy that sounds like a man of the people gets us? Are you sure you wouldn't rather have somebody who actually knows what the hell they're doing? Hate AOC all you want. Be disgusted with Bernie's socialism all you want. But don't let that influence your opinion of what's happening in the White House with this. This is too important. Because if the CDC and all the naysayers are right, you're going to be contributing to an incredibly dangerous situation for each and every one of us. Again, I'm going to repeat those figures. If they're right, again, they may not be. But presumably these figures come from somebody who knows what they're talking about. 327 million people in this country right now, 40 to 70% of the world population, could be infected within a year. That's 130.8 million people just in the United States. 40% of the United States population, the low end of that estimate, 130.8 million people, a 2% fatality rate of those infected, 2.616 million people. Again, you know what that is? That's something like 20 times the influenza outbreak, I think, in 1918. Not quite 20, between 15 and 20, I think. Please, for the love of God, all of you, all of us, get a hold of yourselves. It's a good time to do that. So, have you changed your subscriptions yet? (laughs) Please switch your uh, subscriptions over to an Escaping the Cave feed, an authentic Escaping the Cave feed. Please. Also look at my website, it's pretty. EscapingTheCave.com, Upper World Photo too, UpperWorldPhoto.com. 
you'd like to support the podcast with a beautiful work of art. <laughs> I'm a whore. Fuck Twitter, no Facebook page. And the Media 202 course begins soon. Thank you ever so much for clicking in. we got another podcast coming up for you soon enough. Till then, so long. <laughs>